0: It is 9 o'clock. We're going to get rolling. I'm kind of like a dog on a chain this morning, you know. I've been wanting to start for the last five minutes. I've been pacing up here back and forth. But we're going to start the way we should start before we open up the Word of God with prayer. So as you settle in, I'm going to pray to our mighty God who is worthy to be worshipped. Heavenly Father, we love you, praise you. We love you because you first loved us. We love you because of who you are. We love you because you are the only God and you're a God that has loving kindness that is beyond our understanding. Mercy and grace that we can't comprehend. You do things and promise things to us that we can't even process in our minds in this world. But there will be a day where our faith will become sight. And today we have another opportunity to look forward into the future in an event, to an event, within an event where that will be culminating and that truth will be very clear to us and our reaction will be worship just as it should be today. And as we worship you, as we study your word, I pray that it makes an impact on us because for the moment it has been decided by you that we should continue to work down here for a little bit longer, doing your work, proclaiming your truth, and you desire for us to love that, to hunger to do that, to be inspired and passionate about doing that because what you've done is you've changed our lives. You've saved us and pulled us from the pit. And what we once were, we are no longer, and that's because of your finished work on the cross, and we praise your name for it. And as we consider this moment in the future, I pray that it changes us today and that we become more like your son because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As uh, we go into this next section of this scene in chapter 5, before I do that, I need to clean up a few things. Uh, Ruth asked me to to say something about the rapture real quick, and I think it it will help for clarification. Others have asked for a little bit more clarification about the rewards, the the crowns last week, so I I will rehash that a little bit. Because of that, we probably won't get through seven verses today. I'll just tell you right off the bat i think we're all okay with that Uh, i've said this before i think studying the word of god is such an important and precious thing to do that we we should take our time with it we should dig into it and we should we should want to take our time with it we don't want to rush through it but real quick on the rapture uh you know that the, the interesting thing about the rapture of the church as i've gotten older my mind has trying to envision it or imagine it i think you've done the same It begins to change as things change in the world. And you think, well, how is this going to look? What's the impact going to be? And, you know, how many true Christians are there? We don't have answers for those questions, by the way. What that's really going to look like, how many true believers there really are, what that impact will be. I'll tell you this, and as I just had this conversation with Ruth, there will be an impact. It is a supernatural event. Men have to explain away supernatural events with a humanistic viewpoint. There will be explanations for what happened. The impact will be great, not because necessarily because billions of people are are taken. I don't know that it will be billions. I, I don't think there are that many true believers. I'm not here to speculate that. We talked about percentages week one. I think it's a smaller number than we think. But you consider the impact that the church has on planet Earth. We represent Christ here. and and we hold at bay some of the immorality that is going on, we're proclaiming truth. You realize we're the only ones who proclaim the real truth. Christians are the only ones who hold the corner on the gospel. We know it, and our job is to to encourage and and to inspire and to, to drive home the truth so we know how God works, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, and you have, and I have, the, the incredible responsibility that God has chosen to give us, a blessing to give us, to be able to proclaim it, that's gone, so that's a huge impact, right? I don't, there, aren't, there, there won't be anybody doing that immediately, in the moment. There will be, as we'll see, there, God will use and get his word out again, but for a moment, that impact of the gospel is gone, right? Right? That is a huge deal. I don't care about the numbers necessarily. I can't tell you how many people are going to be taken. That's not relevant. What's relevant is the impact that we have on the world of proclaiming the truth, God's word for a moment is gone. That's a huge deal, right? That's part of that restraining force. So don't don't get worried about the numbers and the, you know, maybe the movie-type things that you might think of. I don't know what it's going to look like. And if, let's just say, the rapture doesn't happen for another couple hundred years, could we possibly guess what the dynamics will be in the Christian world or Christendom as, as a whole? I think the other problem we may have sometimes is we look at things from an American Christian perspective, right? We look through that lens, and that's also a little dangerous. This is a worldwide event. Christianity is not American. It's not, it's not American. It never has been. It is... It is God's kingdom, his kingdom that is coming, and it's for every nation on earth, all those who put their faith in Christ. And so it's not, it's not something we want to spend a whole lot of time trying to make guesses and draw pictures. We just trust him, and it is our blessed hope, and we're going to talk about that today as well. Okay, so hopefully that answers some of those questions. It, it's, it's an incredible event. It's a supernatural event. The impact will be real But I don't think we necessarily need to go into that category that it's going to be such an impact because of the huge numbers. I don't know what the numbers will be, and that's not even relevant. It's the, what does the church do here? And the impact that the church has on the world is something that Christ himself designed, created, and if we're doing it right, it has a huge impact, and that will be gone for a moment. Hopefully that makes some sense and clears up some of those things. Not here to kind of figure out the numbers. All right. The next part of this, to clean some things up, last week we talked about casting these crowns. So go back to Revelation chapter 4 real quick so we can remind ourselves of what we read, that these, uh, these 24 elders who I made the argument are the church, on a side note here, and this will make Jeffrey happy, you're there Jeffrey, you got your new King James in your hand? He does. My wife also has a new King James in her hand, and when I had argued about the 24 elders being the church, and I talked about their song in chapter 5 later on, it's, it's an interesting thing. It says in chapter 5, and we'll get to this next week probably, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It, I think in the New King James, correct me if I'm wrong, it says us. Is that accurate? And here's the uncomfortable pause as they're looking it up. My wife told me that that was the case. I don't have a New King James in front of me. Is that Revelation 5? Does it say us? I invert. Oh, did I not say the verse? I just was reading. Verse 9. They're shaking their heads. I'm going with the yes, okay? Redeemed us, ransomed us, redeemed us. So that translation gives it yet another, maybe another layer of argument from that. Okay, so the, the church casts their crowns at the foot of Jesus. So now I'm sorry, I'm back to the end of chapter 4 as I confused you there. But that's just kind of another interesting side note. Um, that those of you who had the New King James would have seen us there. And speaking of of who would have been ransomed, we know that's the church. Back to this verse, so we're now in chapter 4 again. Back to verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. We're going to see this again today but they cast these crowns. So here's the argument we were making last week and didn't get very far into it. We did cover this, that we know that this judgment that, that these crowns come from is called the Bema Judgment or Judgment Seat of Christ. We get this from several passages. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of them. Romans 14 is another. Again, if we're looking at this in the Greek, the Judgment Seat, Bema Seat. I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time and reteach this, but notice... The culmination of this in Paul's view here, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I want to make sure that there's some clarity on this as well. I'll try to wrap that. I don't have that same uh, structure that I had last week up there as far as the, the schematic of how things work. This is not the same judgment as the great white throne judgment. So I know there was a little confusion on that last week. The great white throne judgment is not a judgment if you're in Christ, you will ever have to face. That judgment's rough because that judgment has to do with what you've accomplished on your own, in your sin nature, in your body right now. All your self-righteousness, all your sin, all your actions, all your words. Jesus said every word is gonna be up for judgment in that one, that's for the unredeemed. You won't face that, you can't win that because Your deeds are going to be outlined for everybody to see, and it's going to be very clear that you're not worthy, that you can't be saved because you, we're going to see this even in our scriptures today, you aren't worthy at all to go into heaven with that sort of resume. You're just not, and neither am I, okay? That isn't something you'll have to face. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the finished work of, cross, of, the, of Jesus on the cross alone, that we've read in the Bible alone, if you put your faith in Jesus, you don't ever have to face that. You're not condemned anymore. The, the chains that have held you in, the, the sin, that's not there anymore. This is for a whole different thing. This is for, look at what Jesus says, I'm going to repay each other for what he has done. I'm bringing my recompense. A reward. That's for the believer. This is at the end of Revelation, a reminder of I'm coming, and for you believers, you should look forward to it because I'm going to bring a reward, not condemnation. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. So the reminder here from Christ is you're going to be rewarded, and this is a good thing. This is a beautiful thing. This is part of our hope. So I may have confused you last week that this judgment, there are different judgments. This is not a judgment that has got anything to do with your sin. And, and that is a, an encouraging thing to think about. Okay, What Jesus is going to do, according to Paul here, he's going to bring to light things now hidden in darkness. Notice, the purposes of the heart. Okay, So what you're going to be judged on is not your sin, it's your work that you do for Christ. And these rewards, oftentimes in Scripture, are, are described as crowns. So I've given several different examples here. This will be on the website. You can look at that if you re-watch the, the lesson, and these will be up on the screen. Several examples here of the word crown coming up. And when we think of it, I think in our English language, we think of golden crowns, right? We think of a, a king's crown. Really what it's more specifically is a victor's wreath. I briefly mentioned this last week. These passages, and I, I'll have a, a, a kind of a chart here in a moment. You can kind of see some of them, and again, you, you'll be able to pick this up on the website. But we're going to be rewarded. Notice this bullet i give given here, that we do for the kingdom that are from a pure heart. He, the purposes of the heart. He looks at the heart. Christ looks at the heart. He knows why you do what you do. It's these things that you do to kind of connect what Pastor James was talking about last week in his sermon that the Holy Spirit has convicted you, led you, and by his word has taught you to do and you obey because you yield to what the Holy Spirit is driving you to do, those things he rewards you for. So based on that definition I just gave you, those are things Christ did, right? He gives them to you because you're the tool he used, you're the avenue he took. He, he chose to use you, he blessed you in that way, but he doesn't need you He chose to use you and I, and so he uses you to do these things, and because he's such a good God, he rewards you with them. So here's kind of a a, a little chart about this, where we see these crowns, wreaths, and and again, I, I mentioned last week, this is in that time and place that Paul wrote these things, and we see that Peter and John mentioned them too because we see crowns in both 1 Peter and in, when uh, we see it in, in Revelation, James makes mention of one as well, that these people would have thought of games like the Olympics, the Isthmian Games, where they saw this. And these are some of the crowns that are mentioned in the Bible. Now, this is the purpose. This is somebody else's work. I stole it from them as I, I went through some of my materials. This is possibly the definition of them, but... You think about, you know, why, why we're rewarded. If you look at some of these, if you are able to obey the Lord, resist temptation, is it you that's able to do that? No. It's the Holy Spirit within you that's giving you the power to overcome, to, to, to be able to fight against that. If you are proclaiming the gospel and someone gets saved, did you save them? No. Did your incredible intellect save them? Did your wisdom save them? Is it because you read so good? that it saved them? No, the power of God's word that you told them, shared with them, that's Jesus in you. That's the Holy Spirit in you. Who does the saving? Jesus does that. So there's another crown. Christ did it. Enduring trials. Boy, I'm not very good at that on my own. If I go through difficulties and trouble in life and I still have joy and contentment and I have a focus on Jesus, is that me that's doing it? No, If I'm in Christ, the Holy Spirit's giving me the ability, the endurance, the one to be able, we're going to see today in Romans 8, more than conquerors. Why is that? Because he overcame, you can overcome. It's incredible when we think about this, this crown of glory, shepherding God's people. Is that in you to really give of yourself? Is that that really what you are by nature? Is that how I am by nature? I think you know we're not. If you're able to shepherd others and encourage others and be the sort of Church member, you should be. That's the Holy Spirit working in you, doing that. And then longing for his appearing. Only us, only believers understand that Christ is coming and the the culmination of all these promises is coming. Why am I confident about that? I'm confident about that because the Holy Spirit has sealed me, guaranteed these things, and I know it. I only have that confidence because the Holy Spirit's within me. You can see very clearly from this chart and beyond These are things you didn't do. These are things God did through you from a pure heart because you got out of the way and you let the Lord work through you. These are things that you probably won't even remember because they weren't your efforts. They were the Lord's efforts through you, and you simply obeyed like you should every day. And these are things that we are rewarded for. I won't go through this today. We've covered this in the past. I, I stole this from one of my old lessons, but you'll remember this, how Paul breaks this down. These things that we do are categorized. They all can look good, but some are categorized as gold, silver, and precious stones, and some of these things are categorized as wood, hay, and straw. You can see the difference between those two. You set fire to each of those categories, and you know what's going to happen. So the wood, hay, and straw are these things that look good. We do them, but we do them for our own reasons, desires, fulfillments, whatever they are, even if they look good. And they can be good, but they're sinful if we do them for us. If I do them just to impress somebody, if I do them just to get pats on the back, I've just received my reward, it's sinful, and I'm not rewarded for it. And that's what Paul is articulating here. We won't go through this passage, but it's a good reference. But the gold, silver, and precious stones, those are the things... Those are the things that are, not only are they the right thing to do, but you did them for the right reasons, to give glory to Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel because he loved you and you love the people that are in your life because he put them in your life and he's given you this opportunity. You see the difference between those? Those are gold, silver, precious stones. You set fire to those and they are just magnified. And those things are the things that we are going to throw back at him because we know he did it. Does that help make some clarification from last week? I know I spent 20 minutes on that, and that's okay. I just think it's important that we understand. These aren't things that we're holding on to because we accomplished them. And by the way, when we're in this situation, we're glorified, which means we're sinless. So we don't want to hold them because we have no pride left. The men, and, uh, Many of us men were studying the, the Word of God here yesterday and we came to the conclusion, pride's our biggest problem. It leads to so many other sins. I can't even conceive of what I will be like without it, because I've had it all my life. And I still struggle, and so do you. I know I'm speaking for all of us. But when we're here, and we're casting these crowns, there won't be even a split second of saying, I want to keep this. This is I did this. You'll know without, without a shadow of a doubt there is no doubt. I'm throwing this right back at him. I know he did that. He deserves glory, and it's just an opportunity to praise him and worship him, him more. So if you want a motivation, you want to have a whole stack of crowns to throw back at him. You want him to work in, in your life, and you want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant, not because you did it, because you, you had him. he did it through you. You want to hear that, and you want to just throw him back. And that's a beautiful thing to consider. So hopefully that gives some clarity as to what these crowns are. They're not about royalty. They're about what Christ did. And so hopefully that makes some sense. So hopefully I, I, I've given enough understanding to this. And then I threw in MacArthur. He explains things better than I do. Let me read this. He says this about this moment. They have been to the beam of seat judgment, as I explained, as it were. They have received the reward that the Lord said was with him to give them when he appeared. Revelation 22. We have received whatever is involved in the crown of life, the incorruptible crown, the crown of rejoicing, the glory crown, the victory crown, the runner's crown. They've received the gold and silver and precious stones of their life, those fitting eternal rewards. And as it were, they were those rewards like a crown. Instantaneously, however... When the worship crescendos begin soon after the church enters into the presence of the Lord, and as it becomes time to unfold judgment, lost in love and wonder, lost in praise, they divest themselves of all honor and cast it all at the feet of their king. It's a voluntary surrender. He does a better job than I do of explaining this moment, but it kind of culminates all of these things that I've kind of discussed. So hopefully that makes sense as to what this is. Spurgeon says it this way, ah, if there be degrees in glory, they will not be distributed according to our talents, but according to our faithfulness in using them. And add in there gifts too. The Holy Spirit gifts us. Talents, one thing, gifts, another. Several years ago, I did a a whole lesson on that when we went through the Holy Spirit, but oh, our faithfulness in using what God has given us. All right, there's 20 minutes of recap Now, let's get into chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Here we go, Revelation 5, 1 through 7. And this is so good, you just don't want to rush through it, and I feel I rushed it a little bit last week. All right, Revelation 5, 1 through 7. Beautiful stuff, same scene, by the way. It's a good transition, so when we go from giving him praise, you created all things, by your will they existed and were created. Remember, chapter 4, establishing God the creator. And what we're going to see is this transition who is worthy why is he worthy why does he have the right to do what he's about to do chapter 5 gives us this next section and it's a really cool one i'm i'm all you know giddy wanting to teach this to you it's a very cool scene before i even read it okay i want to remind you if you're in christ you will be here someday you will see this with your eyes it's going to be wild because you were studying it now, you've probably studied it before, I pray you will study it again, it's not going to be over after today, and you're going to say, I know this, I've been here before, I've been here before in my heart, in my mind, the Lord has given me, he's, he's, he's allowed me to see into this future, and you're going to experience it, and what's going to be wild is I honestly think, I honestly think that this is true, we will witness John, and this is This is going to wrap your brain into a knot. But we're going to witness John coming and observing this, I think. okay, Because John is stepping into the future in the spirit, right? And that's an important thing to understand. And he's witnessing something that's in our future and his, by the way. John will be there, in my view, again, I could be wrong about this, two times. He will be there in glorified state and he will be there in spirit. And he'll observe it. It's pretty wild. So I think we're going to be able to look and watch this happen. Whether we'll hear the conversation John's going to have with one of us, by the way. Us being the church. Um, I was joking with many. I wonder if, if, because one of the elders is going to speak to John today. He's going to talk to John. And it's interesting what he's going to say to John and how he's going to say it. And it could be somebody in here. It could be Pastor Kevin. Probably more likely Deborah. But it could be any one of us. Could be anybody, right? But it's a pretty cool thing. Will we be able to hear that conversation? It doesn't matter if we can hear it or not. We know what's going to be said because it's already written down. Okay, so hopefully your head is in the right place here. This is pretty cool what we're about to read. All right, back to the text. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God the Father, a scroll written within, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. What a powerful text we have here today. What a very powerful text. First thing I want to point out here is I'm going to break this down, and I'm not going to get through all of this today. I'm not even going to try. We're going to take our time. But we have some things introduced here. Number one, we're going to see right away a document is introduced, and it's an important document, as we'll see here in a moment. But then verse 2, we got a problem also that has to be addressed, a problem that's going to have to be addressed. And then there's an inquiry. There's a, a search, an investigation, maybe you could call it, we got to figure this out. we got to find a solution to this. Then there's a reaction to that conclusion, and it's a reaction of grief. And, and I think we'll get some understanding as to why maybe that reaction is that way. But then there's comfort, and then there's a solution. And then there's a revealing as to why he's the solution. Pretty cool stuff that we're about to see here. So let's get back to this, a scroll with seven seals. What is this document? Well, it says right off the bat gives us some information about it on the right hand of him who is on the seated on the throne. Let me just start right here so I don't forget. Let's understand who's holding this document, which means he's in control and authority over the document. Okay? I need to clarify that because we're going to make an argument here. I'm going to make an argument here about somebody being the god of this world. Okay? And you you know what this is already. You know where I'm going with this already. But I don't want you to think of it this way. That somehow Satan and Jesus are pitted against each other like peers. Or somehow it's in the balance whether or not God is going to beat Satan. That is already done. And I hope I hear a bunch of amens. We know this is done. It isn't like that at all. Keep in mind this scroll, which... Hopefully I'll be able to articulate, and I'm going to use a lot of smarter people than me to help us do this. It's in the authority and in the, in the hands of the almighty God. He's holding it. And if you read ahead, as we read ahead, notice when Jesus comes, he's got it now. He takes it. It's never outside of their control. Okay, It's never outside of their control. Really important. But here's the other elements that we see about this. It's held by God the Father. It's written, it says, within and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. All right, let me give you some clarity. And I, I found a, a great description of this in uh, Dr. Robert Thomas's commentary about this. Here's what he says. I know it's long, but it's important. Talks about the, the context. Now, before we read this, don't, I shouldn't have put this, I'm going to back this up. You're going to no, You won't listen to me if I keep it up on the screen. Sometimes we have to understand time and place, don't we? We've got to kind of get what's going on in the culture when it was written. And when we read a scroll with seven seals, there's really just nothing that we do like that today. It doesn't look like that today. But if somebody read this 2,000 years ago, and John was trying to understand it, and he's the one in this, that's seeing this vision and is in this place in the Spirit, and he's going to articulate this into God's Word— and, and for years, people would have understood this. They would have understood what this meant. They, they would have seen this before in their own time and place. Okay, so keep that in mind. Here's what Dr. Thomas says. He says this, This kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times. Not today, but it was then. And was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract would be written in the inner pages and then sealed with seven seals not just as a will, but various kinds of contracts. Then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. All kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts and rentals and lease agreements, release of slaves, contracts, bills, and even bonds. Support also comes from the Hebrew practices. The Hebrew document most closely resembling this scroll was a title deed, that's important, that was folded and signed, requiring at least three witnesses, A portion of text would be written, folded over and sealed with different witnesses signing each fold. It says a large number of witnesses meant that more importance was assigned to the document. Before I go on to another quote, keep in mind, he's going to make an argument that this is a title deed. And it says that in a title deed, like who owns this, who's controlling this, that many witnesses increases the importance of it. Now, let's just look at our text here for a moment. If we look in and around here, look at Revelation 5.11. Let's just look at Numbers here for a minute. Who are in this place that we are in, okay? This throne room of God that we are in in glorified form, but we're not the only ones there. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. How how many? Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. An uncountable number. That's what that means. An uncountable number. So this is giving us an idea of, of importance. It says, so myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They are saying, I affirm this. What's, going to, what's about to happen, the, the, the lamb that was slain that's going to take this contract, this title deed from the father, They are all, this myriads upon myriads are saying, he is worthy. Skip ahead a little bit to Revelation 7. This is later on in another kind of heavenly interlude. We'll get those occasionally in Revelation. So in a few months when we get to Revelation 7, you think I'm joking, but probably... Look at this, verse nine. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Not only myriads and myriads of angels, but myriads and myriads of glorified saints, or those who, even in this case, probably contextually, are are souls that have been taken to heaven who may have been killed during the tribulation that had put their faith in christ either way what we're dealing with is a lot of witnesses aren't we a lot of people seeing who he really is who deserves this so he gives us an idea of this he's not the only one our faithful john macarthur says this the scroll is some kind of a contract or deed it is some kind of a statement about ownership in this case the details are on the inside and unknown to us not yet, anyway. And the summary of what is on the inside is on the outside. It was then, then would be sealed to make it authentic with wax or clay or some other soft material. It is a title deed to the earth, he agrees. He thinks it's a title deed to the earth. The earth and the universe came under captivity in the fall. I'm going to try to make that argument. But the document that displayed who really owns it, God has had, had it all the time in his possession, as we see even in verse 1. He authored it. He's the rightful claim to it in the little scroll, as it were, on the upturned hand of the Almighty God seated on the throne is the official document that grants the created universe to the Lord himself to be reclaimed from Satan, reclaimed from Satan. Now it's not his, it's not his possession, but we're talking about control, what God has allowed, okay, keep that in mind, and is usurping demons and men who have occupied it during God's absence, as it were. So MacArthur agrees with that. David Jeremiah has a very similar thing in his commentary. Both the inside and the back of the scroll contain writing indicating that nothing more could be added. I like that addition. Nothing can be added to it. This is God's work. This scroll sits on the hand of the one on the throne and it is the title deed to the earth, he agrees. And it is gradually unsealed and unrolled, symbolizing the progressive judgments on the earth as we'll see going forward in the next weeks. The earth is ultimately delivered into the hand of the king of kings, its rightful owner. One more, just one more. The scroll represents the title deed of the earth. A fourth guy says the same thing. Four different commentaries. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them authority to rule on his behalf. And I'm going to go this direction here in just a moment. Genesis 1, 25 through 28. They were given this title deed. But we, of course, know the very sad story. Instead of our forebears ruling under God over creation, they began to listen to creation. A creation, a talking snake who was, in fact, Satan himself. A created being. Keep that in mind. A created being. People worshiping something that was created, not the creator. Anyway, back to the text. And in the process, rebel against God. And the moment this happened, the authority of the world was taken from man's grasp, given to him by God into Satan's grasp. And that's why this title deed is sealed up. In fact, it's so sealed up, it's got seven seals on it. Okay, you're hearing the same thing over and over. So what's the text that we're dealing with? Here's how it started. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us, the Trinity, then God, let us make... Man in our own image, after our likeness, and that let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, he keeps talking about this i 'm giving him. Attributes of me. I'm I'm making him in a way in which I want him to govern here. And I I want, before I keep keep going in the text here, keep in mind one of the promises to the believer is that we will reign with Christ someday, right? Okay. Now, we should have been doing this already, but we dropped the ball right away. But when we reign with Christ, guess what we won't have anymore? That sin nature. It's gone. That pride, that ego, that greed that lust, all that selfishness, all the things we do today and even in our redeemed state because we're still fighting the flesh, but when we reign with him, those will all be gone. We're going to be co-regents with him. He's designed it this way. This isn't because of you. I'm going to keep reminding us of that. He designed designed it this way, but he wanted it this way from the beginning. He wanted us to rule this place. He created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, control it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. It's more than just managing the planet. He wanted us to represent him down here. And every principle that's found in this book, every ethic, every moral, every right way to live, he wanted us to, as creation and they multiplied, to tell the next generations about this great God who created it all. That's what he wanted us to do. But we didn't do it. We know the fall happened enmity between you and the woman there's going to be an enemy now now we know this is the very this is what's cool about genesis 3:15, and i'm skipping on to 22 here we know this is such a cool passage because it's the first from what we can tell that gives us a foreshadowing of the cross which is a beautiful thing but it also tells us we got an enemy now this didn't have to be this way But because we dropped the ball, and we would have too, by the way, don't just blame Adam and Eve, we would have done the same, we got thrown out of the garden. He's become like one of us, knowing good and evil, thinks he knows, and thrown out, that dominion, that control, he drove man out of the Garden of Eden. Remember, when we look at Genesis and we look at Revelation, it's a full circle type of thing. God is making things right. What we wrecked, he's fixing, and only he could do it. When you read the beginning to the end, that's what's happening here, and he is going to make things new. We screwed this up, and and we got booted out for it, and what happened because of that? Well, here's what happened, and the very first time we kind of get an understanding of this, at least in a, I shouldn't say the first time, Job is really the first time. I'm not bringing up Job today, but we have Job in this very interesting situation with Him coming to the throne room of God and having to and give report to God the Father. And where is he when that, where was he coming from? Oh, he's roaming around the earth. He was roaming around the earth. He was subjected to be down here. So, really, the first time we don't see it saying specifically he's in control or has authority, but here we do. Notice this this is the temptation that Christ has during those 40 days in the wilderness before his ministry begins. Also, keep in mind, the Holy Spirit led him out here. This isn't Satan's doing. I want you to understand. Full authority is God the Father's. But there has been given authority to somebody here. Look at what it says. The devil took him. says the devil did this. Took him, it says, to uh, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. How does he do that? Well, it's supernatural, but he does. In a moment of time, And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. Now, Jesus knows everything and he's pretty smart because he's the son of God and he's all knowing he wrote the Bible if this weren't true he would have checked him immediately you don't have anything to give me you don't have any authority but that's not what we see he says I'll give that Satan says I'll give all this authority in their glory for it has been delivered to me he specifically says it's been delivered to me I'm con- I-, I have I'm the God here And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. It will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He didn't correct him. He just corrected him with scripture. I'm going to worship God the Father, my Father. I'm one with him. But he didn't say, it isn't yours to give. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you don't have the right. He didn't say that either. And if you're wondering, well, is that the only time Jesus mentions it? No. No. We've covered this, I've preached on this. John 12, 31, what does Jesus call Satan? The ruler of the world will be cast out. He's talking about Satan. Because of his victory that will come on the cross and the victory that comes as he's leaving that tomb, the ruler of this world will be defeated. But he gives him that title, the ruler of the world. John 14, the ruler of this world. Again, Jesus says the same thing. It's not just Jesus, by the way. It's Paul too. What does Paul call him? The God of this world. Small g, that's really important. What is Paul? And that's in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world. And what is he doing? He's blinding the minds of the unbelievers. He's doing his work that he's been doing since the time of Job. It hasn't changed, roaming the, the earth. That's what he's doing. Notice in Ephesians 2, we know where we were. We know this passage so well. We were entrapped. We were following the course of this world, but it wasn't just the world. Who were we following? The prince and the power of the air. That's that's somebody who's got authority here. So Paul believes it, and then John has said it. He who is in this world. We're going to come back to 1 John 4 next week, possibly this week. 1 John 5. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's got authority here. So this title deed, God's in control. Don't, Don't forget. Okay, It's not in the balance it's already been written, but for the moment, who's controlling this place? It's kind of funny when we, we, bad things happen. Who is instantly blamed on CNN or one of these others, MSNBC? How could God do this? No, 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 no. The God of this world and us, our sin, has caused the trouble that's down here. It's not the God of the universe. He loves us. This isn't the way he planned it. He's going to make all things right. But God the Father is who everybody wants to blame, There's a God of this world that you could blame. By the way, you can look in the mirror and blame us too because he doesn't make us sin. But we're entrapped by his lies. So keep in mind, that's this title deed, and I think they're right on this. And let's go to Romans 8, and this is probably where we're going to have to end. And that's okay because it really leads us into this next text for next week. Actually, by God's providence, this is a great place to stop. We're going to look at Romans 8 for two reasons in this section. The first one is this. And it's for perspective. Romans 8. And be, because I don't want to get kind of lost in the, the forest here of this, I want you to keep in mind God is giving, he's good enough to give us a look into the future and an understanding of some of these things because he wants to remind you of who he is and who you are in him. Okay, And, and what it is that as we sit in this world today and we're struggling kind of the, the things that we're looking forward to, and then how that dictates how we live today. All right, so Romans 8, we're going to look at this, and we're, we're going to start today in verse 18. I've got 19 up there. We're going to start at 18, and we're going to see how this culminates later on in the passage in verse 37. You'll see this connecting next week, okay? But we'll talk about that then. Let's start at verse 18. Romans 8, starting at verse 18. I consider, Paul saying this, That the sufferings of this present time, and they are lousy, this world is full of trouble, all kinds of it, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Perspective. How many times have I said temporal versus eternal in this discussion? Uh, Probably the most common phrase I've used. That this is what our study of of Revelation is going to remind us that what's most important is the eternal, not the temporal. The temporal is important because God's put us here to, to work for Him. And we're to do his work and to continue to obey him. But our minds are on what's coming. It's going to be amazing and it should motivate us to reveal to us. Here's what it says. Look at this. What we just decided. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For us to be glorified. for For the culmination of our salvation. That's what it's talking about. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God of this world in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, that's us, that's everything around us, and it's the planet itself, everything here, that so the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. Okay, now this is really important. I, I won't finish that verse for today, but just think about this. This world as it is, and so many Christians have this backwards, and I think this is where, where an amillennialist or, or, or a, a preterist would really, to me these passages, would they'd have to struggle with them. This world is groaning for the Lord's return. It, it needs it. This title deed has to get into the right hands. Okay, We're going to see why Jesus Christ is worthy to take the title deed and control this planet and to establish his kingdom. We're going to see that next week. But you realize, as believers, we're anticipating this too. We're thinking about this too. If you don't like the world as it is, yeah, me either. Neither does Jesus, but it's all going to get fixed someday. You realize this is the hope that we were saved in? That this world we live in is not our home, that it is not the end, that it isn't. We, we, we oftentimes get so buried in the culture wars and things that are going on in our, in our government and, and throughout the world, and we forget this isn't how it's always going to be. We forget that the reason why the world looks the way they do is because they they got the same problem that the era of judges had. They do what's right in their own eyes because they have no king, but we do and we know who he is, and we're going to get a lot of clarity on who he is next week, and that should motivate us to act differently, have a different consistency about us, a different attitude. As we walk through this twisted, dark, terrible, sinful place, people should look at us and say, what's with you? Haven't you looked around here? And you say, but, but here's what's coming. Here's what's coming. Here's who's coming. That's going to change things. That's going to change things. And you will get those opportunities. I've had them myself. I'll just give you a confession. Truck drivers aren't the happiest guys in the world. (laughs) Am I right, Dave? But when you have joy and they ask you why, you have an opportunity to say there's something better coming. You want to be part of that something better? I can tell you how. Boy, that really puts a perspective on the term gospel, good news, Everything here is bad news. You watch the news, bad news every day, including the weather lately. Okay? But that's only temporary. That's only temporary. We got through one verse. there, You see what I mean. I, I was chomping at the bit for this all week long, and there's so, so much good stuff coming here. But you and I know it's coming. We're groaning for it, and it's not just, it's us too. The fulfillment of all these promises, it's coming, and it's going to dictate how this one elder here, how he reacts and tells John, hey, man, don't weep anymore. Don't weep anymore. You're in this world. I know. You can't see it yet, but you will. You will. You're going to see what I see, and he gets a chance to see it, and it changes everything for John. It should change things for you today, right here, right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this passage. One verse, but... What a great one. We know what's coming. We know you're going to take that title deed back. yours anyway. We messed it up. We confess it. We continue to mess it up. We confess that too. In our shortcomings, you're faithful when we're not. You continue to give us opportunities for those of us who have put their faith in your son. And you give us this chance to continue to represent you well down here, knowing that things are going to get better when our king comes. Everything's going to be made new. In the meantime, you've got us working our, our, doing our work down here and and trying to be the representatives you've called us to be. Help us to do that. I pray that we get out of the way of your word and we just obey it. That we listen to the conviction and driving of the Holy Spirit and we, we do what we're called to do. So that we can have the joy and the contentment and the hope that the world has no choice but to notice. As they see darkness, we see light. As they live in darkness, we can show them the light. I pray that we give those, get those opportunities. We know you'll give them to us this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.